Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Listen now to the word of the Lord. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you had to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has, who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have no abundance, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to welcome uh, Pastor Clayton with us today. Um, let me give you a brief, a brief bio. Um, so Pastor Clayton, is currently serving at Metro Community Church. Uh, he is the pastor of Early Marriage Ministry and the director of Jack Youth, Jack being Justice, Advocacy, and Compassion. Having spent his childhood in the suburbs of Massachusetts, uh, Pastor Clayton is now a lonely Patriots fan among a sea of Giants and Jets fans. Clayton graduated from the University of Massachusetts with a double major in economics and religion. He then continued his education by completing his MDiv at Princeton Theological Seminary in 2011. Over the years, God has been growing Clayton's heart with a desire to see marriages flourish 
which has led him to become the pastor of the early marriage ministry at Metro, walking alongside married couples as they begin their journey together. Pastor, Chan pastor Clayton is also involved with Metro's youth where he is blessed to witness firsthand how God is using his people to serve and love his children all around the world. Please join me in welcoming Pastor Clinton. Sorry about that. Uh, good morning, Graceway. Um, so good to be with you today and worshiping together. Um, like um, some of you guys have heard, um, I'm really excited to be here sharing with you God's word because I've known about your church from afar for a, very, for a long time, actually, because I started out as a seminary student at Princeton, so I've known about your church, but also uh, my wife, Esther, um, she went to Rutgers, and so she knows a few of you in attendance today. Um, so to begin, would you just bow with me um, as I pray? God, we just thank you for just your grace and your mercy in our lives each and every day, God, from the small things to the great things. We know, Father, that you are working uh, for your people, for those who love you, God. And so I just pray, Father, right now that your spirit would be in this place. You meet us, God, with where we are. You know the things that we're going through. You know our struggles. You know our pains. You know our hardships. You know even our victories, God. And we just pray, Father, that you would meet us now and that you would bless us and give us, God, what we need. But I also pray, Father, that you would give us just the heart to be able to understand, God, your heart for, for not only ourselves, but also for this world, Lord. I pray, God, that you would open up our eyes and our ears just to be able to see you and to hear you. And that, Lord, you would just speak to us, God, in a powerful way this morning, transforming us to be more and more like your son. So we thank you, God, for what you're about to do. We just pray, Father, that you would be pleased and that you would be blessed right now. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. To begin, I just want to share a little bit about myself, uh, just to give you guys some context. I know that my bio was read, but yes, I am a pastor at Metro Community Church. Uh, it's a church that meets in Englewood, New Jersey, so the Bergen County area. Uh, I've been there for about 11 years, first starting out as a youth pastor, and now I serve our newlywed couples. Um, I'm a huge sports fan. I'm a huge sports fan, not just the Patriots, which is really sad for me to be around this area. Uh, and I know like, the Giants are our kryptonite. Right? That's the only team that I'm afraid to see when it comes to the playoffs. But I'm a huge fan, and I get a lot of flack for being a Red Sox, uh, a Celtics, and a Patriots fan in this area. Um, I've been married to my wife, Esther, um, for the last six years. Uh, it's funny because this is actually the last place I ever imagined myself to be, in New Jersey, you know, coming from Boston. But so much good has come from being in this place. And so I met my wife here, but also I have two beautiful sons. Uh, the first is, my oldest is Weston, he's a three-year-old. Um, and my youngest is Wyatt, and he's a one-year-old. And so, as you can see, there's some pictures of my family. There's a picture of Weston. Uh, this is probably like a year ago. Um, but that's just a little context of who I am, uh, where I'm coming from. And one of the things that I've loved, I know we're still in a pandemic, uh, but one of the things I've loved or I've really appreciated during the pandemic has been able to, was the fact that I can spend a lot of time with my family and my kids. So I've been able to just see them grow uh, and develop. And so my one-year-old, West Wyatt, like, I love that at this moment he's like walking around and he's talking and he's playing. I can interact with them. 
Uh, and for my oldest, my three-year-old Weston, um, I just love that he's actually moved on from his terrible twos. Right? A lot of you parents know, right? Two is a difficult time in parenting because uh, your kids just like to be difficult. And that's what Weston was. He liked to be difficult. He loved the word no. Uh, we tell him, go brush your teeth. He'd respond, no. We tell him, hey, go finish your food. He'd say, no. Um, we tell him, hey, stop hugging those mannequins. We'd say, and he would say, no, right? True story. My son, he is a lover in every way, even loving things that aren't alive. And so whenever we go shopping, he would wave to these mannequins and hug them. And so we'd have to be like, stop. Those aren't real people. Right? And so my son, for a while, he just loved saying the word no, which was really difficult for us because we just wanted him to listen and to obey us when we asked him to do things. Uh, but eventually, after trying so many different things, we figured out what worked with him. Right? And the key to dealing with defiant children, for, in, in our case, was just to take away the thing that they love the most. You take that away, or you threaten that, then they'll listen to you. And for my son, it was his Captain America costume. And that's why there's a picture of him wearing his costume. This is actually not during Halloween. This is months afterwards. And that's how much he loves this costume. But for us, we knew that he loved his Captain America costume so much that we leveraged it to make him listen to us. It got so bad that after a while, we didn't have to say anything. The moment we moved towards our bedroom where we stored his costume, he would just start crying and say, don't take away Captain America. Right? That's how much... He loved this costume. That's how much he loved dressing up for Halloween. But I'm not saying as parents, because many of you guys are parents, that you follow my lead when it comes to parenting. This is probably the worst advice that I could ever give to you as a parent. But my son, Weston, learned an important lesson. And that lesson was that he is accountable for his actions. Right? The choices and decisions that he makes are his, and he's free to make the choices that he wants but he will be accountable for the choices that he makes. And it's the same for us. We have the freedom to make the choices and decisions in our lives, but we also will be held accountable for our choices. Jesus has told us that he will come back one day and that we will have to take an account for how we live in the present. But for many of us, I think that we reduce our faith simply to our beliefs. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he died on the cross and saved us from our sins. We believe that he is resurrected and he has victory over sin and death. We believe so many things about Jesus, but that's not what we're going to be held accountable for. What we will be held accountable for is how we put our faith and our belief into action. Belief is just the starting point of our faith but it's in choosing to live faithfully for Jesus that we see real evidence of that faith. It's in faithfulness that God desires for you and me. And so today, we're going to take a look at what it means to live faithfully as we await Jesus' return. And if you have your Bibles with me, I'm going to read from, once again, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 through 30. And I know we've just read it, but I don't think you could ever get enough of Scripture. So we're going to read it again. So chapter 25 of Matthew starting with verse 14, and we're going to read to 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on this journey. 
The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have a abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable, we are told that the master is going on a journey and he entrusts his wealth with his servants. And after some time, the master returns to settle accounts with each servant. He holds each accountable for the choices that they made with the money that was given to them. But the criteria by which they were judged and evaluated isn't what you would think. If we were to be evaluated today for our work, by what criteria would we be judged? It probably would be on our success or our production or our results. But God cares about one thing and one thing only, and that's faithfulness. The servants were judged and evaluated by their faithfulness. In reading, reading the passage, you might think that the servants were judged by their success because the two servants who had earned a profit were plea, were, found the master's approval while the one who earned nothing was rejected. But we have to look at the master's response. The amount that the servants were given was a great deal of money. Right? Scholars say that the a talent equates to about 15 or 20 years of a day laborer's wage. Other scholars say it equates to about $600,000 in today's uh, money, currency. These are big sums of money, but for the master, they were, it was actually a small amount. The master goes on to describe the talents that he handed as small amounts when he tells the faithful servants, you have been faithful with a few things. Right? In his eyes, what he has entrusted to them is very small, it's few. It wasn't about the money, it wasn't about the results for the master. 
What the master was focusing on was how each servant used what had been entrusted to them. And we find out that the two servants who acted, that two servants acted faithfully while one servant acted fearfully. The second, the one servant who had been given five bags of gold gained five more, and the master commends him by calling him good and faithful. The second servant who had been given two bags gained two more, and like the first, the master is well pleased and says the same thing, good and faithful. Both servants received the same reply, even though they earned different amounts. Because at the end of the day, God, the master, was looking at their faithfulness. But it's with the third servant that we see a different response. The third servant who was given one bag of gold did not use what had been given to him to profit the master, but instead he buries it into the ground so that he wouldn't lose it. The third servant who buried the master's property acted out of fear. He was afraid of many things. He was afraid that someone was going to steal the money. He was afraid that he was going to lose it. But most of all, what he was afraid of was the master himself. In justifying his actions, the third servant says in verse 24, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. So here's what belongs to you. He saw the master as a hard man, someone who was unethical and corrupt, taking what he did not sow or harvest. And because of this, he acted out of fear. Do you find yourself living by faith or by fear? And the answer to that question hinges on another question, which is, who is God to you? Is God someone to be feared or is he someone to be revered? How you answer this question will determine how you will live in the present. In the Bible, we're told that we are to fear God, but the word for fear in those instances is better understood as revere. The reverence of God is a holy fear founded in his infinite power, might, love, and kindness. It is not a fear that leads us to run away or hide from God, but one that beckons us near to him. Because the more that we understand God's lavish love for us, the closer that we want to be to him. The lens by which we experience God is impacted by how we view him. If we view God as this angry God who's out to get us, then that's the lens by which we're going to see everything. When we're suffering or going through hardship, we see God as the one who's inflicting the pain on us. But if we see God as this loving God, whenever we do go through hardship or suffering, we understand that it's God who's been the one carrying us and helping us to endure through that suffering. If God is just a killjoy who wants to take all your fun away, then his commandments will seem like oppression instead of liberation and him wanting us to live the abundant life. Our view of God will inform our experience of him. And having a wrong attitude about God results in an act of disobedience. Right? When we misconceive who God is, it will lead us to alienate, alienation, distrust, and ultimately unfaithfulness to, towards God. How many of you 
are fearful that God is going to ruin your life if you were to give your whole life to him. That notion is founded in an inaccurate view of who God is. If God is all good, all loving, and faithful, how can we believe anything else than that God wants the very best for us? Even when we give our whole lives to him. And this is why we have to separate the truth from just perception. It's important for us to have a right conception of God. We need to be able to see God for who he truly is. In the passage, the master represents God, and it might seem like the passage is saying that God is corrupt and wicked, but that's not what Jesus is getting at at all. Jesus would never call God the Father evil. This description of the master is only a view that the third servant had. Neither of the other two servants describes the master in this way. And when we look at the entire passage as a whole, nothing would indicate that this master was evil at all. In fact, what we see is a master who is good and generous. The master puts a lot of faith in his servants, entrusting them with his wealth. He wasn't obligated to give them anything, but he decides to partner with them, to invite them into his business. Not only will those who are faithful be, re be rewarded with more, but the master wants his servants to share in his joy. He wants them to experience joy. Everything points to this master being good, and I would even suggest that this unfaithful servant didn't know the master at all. When we have a right relationship with God and know his true character and nature, then we will operate we will be able to operate out of faith rather than fear. And this living by faith that we're talking about isn't just obedience. I think, yes, obedience is a good starting place. But to be faithful is to obey, but it's so much more than that. Right? Notice in the passage that the master does not give the servants any instructions. He simply leaves them with his resources, and they are to use it as they see fit. Their faithfulness was not based on how well they followed the master's instructions because there were no instructions. They were to use their discernment and wisdom and take the initiative to act in a manner that would please the master. Faithfulness is about pleasing God. It's about knowing his heart and wanting to live in a way that honors him. So what does faithfulness look like as we await Jesus' return today? The first is that we are faithful when we are good stewards of our gifts and resources. When we are good stewards of our gifts and resources. We are called to be good stewards of the gifts and resources that God has given to us. Right? Look at what it says in verse 15. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability, then he went on his journey. The master in the parable gives the servants bags of gold. The master is the owner of this gold, and he entrusts his servants with what is his. In the same way, God is the owner of everything. Everything that we have is a gift from him. Being a good steward begins with understanding that everything is God's. And this can be difficult at times because we want to believe that everything that we have has been earned with our own hands. But it is God who has blessed us with it. And it is God who gives and takes away at any moment. 
Being a good steward is about recognizing God's provision and using his resources he's given to us, not for our own purposes, but for his purposes. The two faithful servants in the parable, they used what was given to them to earn more for their master. They didn't seek their own gain. They didn't think, how can I make my life easier or better? They were single-minded and focused on one thing, how to make a profit for their master. Are we using God's resources for God's gain, or do we tend to use it for our own gain? And the question is, are we building up God's kingdom, or are we too busy building up our own kingdom? If you want to know the answer to that question, take a look at how you're using your resources, how you're spending your time, how you're using your influence, how you're using, yes, even your treasures and money. One of the topics that Jesus spoke most often about in the Bible is money. Because he knows for so many of us, we struggle with loving money too much to the point that even giving and giving generously is hard for us. It's become an option for us. But tithing and giving generously is not optional for a disciple. It's a biblical mandate from God that we would give a tithe to support the work of God in this world. When you give, you're partnering with God in his work. So many of us, we see tithing and giving to the church as the amount that we give instead of, it's, instead of us seeing it as more people actually coming to know Jesus. Right? Tithing is about people experiencing the love of God and becoming disciples of Jesus. Right? How could we not want to give knowing that that's where our resources are going? That it's making a kingdom impact. That it's making an impact for eternity. Giving is rooted in stewardship. And one thing I've learned about giving is that you can never outgive God. Right? Even in the passage, we're told that those who are faithful with what has been given to them will be rewarded with more. And I'm not saying that God is giving give you more money uh, depending on how much you give, but I will say that God will bless you far more than you could ever bless him. Right? God has promised that he would bless us far more and give us far more than we could ever give to him. So my challenge is, let's be good stewards with our resources but it's not just about our resources, it's also about our gifts and talents. In the passage, we're told that the servants were given a certain amount of gold according to their ability. Right? The amounts that were given were different. One person was given five, another person two, another one, but they were all given something, and it was according to their ability. Each of you has certain abilities. Each of you has certain gifts and talents. You all have so many gifts and talents, right? But what's keeping you from using them? Some of us were too busy coveting and wanting other gifts and talents. And I'm sure there's certain things that we'd all love to be good at. But don't devalue how God has created you and the gifts and talents that he's given to you. God created you wonderfully and perfectly. Your gifts and talents are a blessing from God. He wants you to be faithful with them. So don't waste them. Having talent without using it is just potential, and untapped potential is just a wasted opportunity. For me, one thing that I've discovered um, about myself recently is that I love 
carpentry. Like I love carpentry, I love woodworking. Uh, and I think it came from me just loving HGTV. Does, does anyone watch HGTV here? No, some, maybe, okay. Well, my favorite show uh, for a while was Fixer Upper. And I think there's something so biblical about it because it's like you take these old houses run down, beaten and broken, and then these people fix it up and make it beautiful again, right? And that's the gospel, right? That we are beaten and broken, we are sinful, and yet God redeems us and makes us beautiful again. And so this is sort of a late discovery uh, about myself that I love like woodworking and carpentry, so much so that on my last sabbatical, I actually took a month-long intensive carpentry class in Vermont. You know, this is way before I had kids, and so thankfully my wife was very gracious. She allowed me to be away for a month and just learn how to build things with wood, with carpentry. And so coming back from that, like I've grown uh, to love it even more. And now I'm known as like the carpentry pastor at my church, right? For better or worse, if there's a problem at somebody's house, they'll call me and be like, Clay, can you come over and help me fix this? Right? It doesn't matter what time it is. They're just like, hey, I have an emergency. Can you come and help me with this? And of course, as a pastor, I'll be like, yeah, I'll be there. I'll help you with it. You know, I don't want you to have leaks. I don't want you to have a flood in your home. So I'll help you with whatever I can. But it's also been a tremendous blessing to me because I've been able to use my gifts and talents, even a talent that I've discovered way later in life, to just bless people. You know, I just recently met up with a member of our church who also loves woodworking. He's far ahead of me. But we were going to be starting up a small group, a community group, for people who want to just learn how to build things with wood, with carpentry. And so it's our way of just creating community at our own church. But the point is, each of you has gifts and talents. Whether you were born with it from the day that you were born, you knew this is what you were made for, or even some things that you've discovered later in life. It's never too late to discover your gifts and talents, but there is going to be a day where it's too late to use them. In the passage, we're told that the consequence of not putting our talents to work is that they will be taken away. The one talent that the third servant had was given, was wasted, and in the end, it was taken away from him. But that's not even the worst part of the story. He didn't just lose his talent, but he missed out on sharing in that master's happiness. He missed out on experiencing joy. The real tragedy of wasting our gifts isn't that you'll lose them, but that you'll miss out on experiencing the joy of the Father. When we partner with God in building his kingdom, we experience deep joy knowing that what we are doing pleases God, but it's also making an eternal kingdom difference. It's a joy that will last for all eternity. Don't let your gifts and talents go to waste. Let's live faithfully by being good stewards of our time, our treasures, and our talents. God has made you specifically, wonderfully, perfectly in the way that he's created you. So don't let that go to waste. The second way that we can live faithfully is by taking risks with purpose. Right? Taking risks with purpose. God doesn't mind failure. I think we care about failure. We have a aversion to failure. We don't want to take risks and fail, so oftentimes we play it safe. But in playing it safe, we're actually being unfaithful. Look at what it says in verse 24 and 25. 
Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The servant's actions are driven by fear. He was afraid of the master because in his eyes, the master was unethical and corrupt. But there's another reason for his fear, and that is his fear of failure. And we know that by the master's response. This is what the master responds in verse 26. You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. The master's response isn't an admission of guilt. He's not admitting to being unethical or corrupt. And if we look closely, we see that the master leaves out a key word, and that word is hard. He does not say he is a hard man, because in fact, that is not who he is. What the master is doing in this instance is using the servant's own words to tear down the servant's excuse. He is saying, if you truly believed what you are saying about me, then at the very least, you would put my money with the bankers and earn some kind of profit. The servant's actions were partially driven by his fear of failure. He didn't trust in his own ability, even though the master trusted in his ability. We need to stop being afraid of failing because it's okay to fail. If we fear failure, then we are making it too much about ourselves, and it could be an indication that we have low self-esteem in this area. I was at a conference one time where the psychologist was giving a talk uh, about students and procrastination. And what she said was that oftentimes students will procrastinate because they're so afraid of failing. Right? And the reason is because instead of just trying their hardest to earn an A or to do their very best and get the best grade that they can, instead they will procrastinate because if they get a B or C, they have an excuse. They can say, oh, I only had like an hour to study. I got a B. Oh, that's pretty good. It's their fear of failure of not getting that A that causes them to procrastinate. They are settling for a worse grade because of their fear of failure. Why are we settling for lesser things when God calls us to greater things? You need to stop making it about yourself and let go of your fear of failure so that God can use you. Stop allowing your fears to dictate what God can do through you. If you're not taking risks for God because of your fears, you're being selfish because you're not allowing God to use you in mighty and powerful ways. Right? A lot of times, the things that God calls us to is God-sized. They're risks. But God promises that he's going to see us through it. The things that God calls us to will require faith. But you can be confident that God is the one who's going to give you that strength and whatever you need to accomplish his goals. Risking failure for a worthy cause is always worth it. And there's no greater cause than to please God and to share in his joy. How many of us would be willing to look like a fool for God? 
to do the will of God, to risk failure, and to experience being humbled isn't the worst thing in life. It's far worse to never step out in faith because then you will never experience the victories that come from obeying God and following his will. Faithfulness requires us to take risks because the things that God calls us to are always God-sized. To be faithful is to take risks for God. And the third way that we can be faithful is by putting our faith into practice. By putting our faith into practice. In this parable, two servants are commended for their action while one servant is rejected or rebuked or called out for his inaction. The servants are being called faithful for what they believe, isn't for what they believe, but it's in putting their belief into action. The two faithful servants, they know the master's desires and acted accordingly. They didn't wait, but they went to work immediately. Living faithfully and working to build God's kingdom matters. It is evidence of our discipleship. The reality is that we will be judged and held accountable for the way that we live. And this parable serves as a warning and test of our discipleship. A warning and test of our discipleship. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus. We have to put that belief into action because if we don't, then the reality is, and I'm hate to say this, but the reality is that we might be going to hell. And this is not just, this is not my words. I hate to say these words, but these are the words of Jesus. The third servant is thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this isn't about earning your way into heaven. I'm not talking about works-based faith. Right? Salvation cannot be earned. It is only by faith But without action, faith is meaningless. In chapter 2 of James, it says, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by works, is dead. We cannot earn our way into heaven. It is only by God's grace that we're saved. But effort does matter. I love what theologian Dallas Willard says about grace. He says, Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is the outworking of our faith, and it shows that we are partnering with God in his mission on earth. What we do because of our beliefs is just as important as what we believe. Our faith is more than just showing up and listening to a sermon It's more than just reading the Bible. It's more than just singing songs of worship. These are all important things to our faith. Don't get me wrong. But in the end, if we're also not building up God's kingdom, then it's meaningless. I don't think Jesus would be very pleased to come back today and he saw us here worshiping together, but doing nothing for those who are marginalized, oppressed, and lost in the world. If our faith was only evident on Sunday morning, I think God would be disappointed. The purpose of the church isn't for people to simply gather together. The mission of the church has always been about carrying the gospel, the good news, outside of these walls. We gather so that we could scatter carrying the good news. If our faith isn't being put into practice, 
then do we have real faith? A few years ago, uh, I found myself in the middle of potentially ministry-destroying rumors. Uh, I was leading the high school ministry at the time, and we were actually experiencing really great growth. We were trying to be um, just faithful in our calling to be a place for the unchurched and the church where people could come and find community. And the great thing was that God was really blessing us. He was bringing people inside the church, but also the kids and the community to be part of a church, people who have never been inside a church building ever. The ministry was thriving, but then all of a sudden, there were rumors going around that kids were being sexually active in our church grounds. And so when I heard that, I was like shocked. I was like, there's no way that this could be possible. But after the shock wore off, I started to feel shame. I started to feel like I had failed as a leader. I started to feel like I had failed as a pastor. I was worried that I had actually destroyed God's church. And it was a really dark time for me because I just didn't think I was qualified to be a pastor anymore. I thought I had done too much damage, that this happened under my watch. I thought that the youth group and the church would be better off in someone else's hands. And so for a while, I wanted to quit. I had serious thoughts about just quitting ministry, quitting the church. But through the wise counsel and just mentors and friends, I was reminded of my calling. I was reminded that God had called me to be a pastor. And for so long, that's all I could cling on to because everything else in ministry was just going wrong. I had to remember that God had gifted me and given me a passion to love the youth, to love kids and students. And so all I could do for a while was just cling on to my calling. And I wish I could say that everything went back to good um, immediately. I wish that things, I could tell you that things solved, were solved overnight, but they weren't. The damage was done. People left the church. The ministry started being destroyed. People left, kids left. But God was still doing a work in the youth group and he was still doing a work in me and he was still doing a work in my church. Looking back, I'm really glad that I actually didn't quit. I'm also glad that I didn't allow my fear and experience of failure to keep me from continuing in ministry, from using my gifts and taking risks for God because if I had, I would have missed out on something so beautiful. And that was the restoration and the redemption of the ministry. Like I said, it didn't happen overnight. It took a while, but God brought us to another chapter. God brought us this youth group back from the dead, and he actually had blessed it and allowed it to thrive. The first day that I started as a youth pastor, we had one student. By the end, we had over 100 students. And this is after the scandal. When we choose to be faithful by being good stewards, taking risks with purpose, and putting our faith into action, we will experience God's faithfulness in our lives. I promise you that. Jesus is clear about what the future holds. He will come back one day and take account for how we live in the present. What he desires is faith over fear. So don't let your fears keep you from living faithfully for him. My hope and prayer for all of us is that when Jesus returns, we would hear him say the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Will you bow with me and pray?
God, we thank you for being sufficient in our lives. I know, Father, that this wasn't a necessarily the most encouraging or hope-filled messages. But I do believe, Father, that you want us to be serious about our faith. And the hope and the encouragement that we have comes from knowing you, God, and knowing that you want us to be a part, Father, of the work that you're doing in this world. And so I pray, Father, for just conviction. I pray, Father, for each of, each of us in this room, Lord, that we would come to understand, Father, the way that you've gifted us, the way that you've created us, the ways that we can really live, Father, into our calling as your disciples. And I pray, Father, that no one here would feel condemned in any way because you did not come to condemn, Father, but you came to give life. And so I just pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to see, Father, that there is a greater purpose, a greater kingdom building, Father, that needs to happen, and that you're going to use your people, God, not because you need us, but because you choose to use us, Father, to be part of your hands and your feet in this world. And so, Father, I just pray that we would be faithful that we would long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So what I pray for right now, God, is just a greater understanding of who you are, your heart, understanding, God, how we can just love you, God, and love the world around us. I pray, Father, that you would just continue to work in us and minister to us. And for anyone, God, who's struggling right now, I pray that they would have an extra portion, Father, of just your grace right now, that you would meet them with where they are at this moment. Because you promised, God, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, but that you are a God who is always present with us. And so we thank you, God, for your presence in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.